There Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In songs, oxymorons can make sense even when they shouldn't. Of course, Simon and Garfunkel gave us the sound of silence. Huey Lewis and the news let us know it was hip to be square. The mamas and the papas said they were glad to be unhappy, and Jeff Beck said, definitely maybe. I like that one. Uh, In our text tonight, Paul opens a sweet window into his personal prayer life, but as we read it, it sounds like there's a big old oxymoron right in the middle. He prays, I want you to know what can't be known, and we think, what's up with that? We know Paul was a songwriter. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is actually a hymn in three stanzas. But these aren't the lyrics of a melancholy artist. We can feel the joy and the excitement radiating off the page as we read these verses. And these are some of the most famous passages in the book. These are the words of someone who understands the love of God on a profound level and who wants others to understand as well. That's really the whole point of the book, that the church would understand who we are and what God has done and how we can walk in his power. The first three chapters are what we might call the doctrinal section, and the next three chapters are very practical, sort of rubber meets the road, how to do it. And what an encouragement it would have been for the original hearers because as Paul moves into the here's how to live it out section of the letter, he first says, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm talking to God about you. I'm doing what I can from afar to help you receive what God really wants to give you. And so that's a big encouragement, sweet to see into his prayer life because it's not just his prayer life, it's his prayer life for the people he's writing to that includes you and I. Verse 14 says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, so for what reason? Well, all that's come before. Because God had revealed mysteries to him. Because God has a plan for Christians that started in eternity past. Because of God's riches and inheritance and his calling that he gives to his people. For these reasons, Paul then goes to prayer. It was God's purpose that made Paul pray, not man's purposes. Paul understood a lot of things about the Lord, right? We've been in this section where he's explaining, hey, the Lord gave me, Paul, specific, special revelations that I'm now telling you, mysteries uh, that were before unknown. And so he understood things about God. He understood a lot about God's care for humanity, God's plan for the world, how his work unfolds, all of that as we've been going through these passages. And after talking about those things, he thought to himself, okay, now I'm going to go to prayer knowing what I know, 
and I'm going to orient my prayer according to God's will and God's purposes, not just according to what I feel like I want or need at the moment. Uh, Now, God is absolutely fine with us praying about things that we need in the moment, right? Give us this day our daily bread. God's fine with that. And it says, cast your cares upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. And so it's not wrong to pray about things going on in your life in the moment, or, hey, Lord, I need this, or, Lord, here's how I'm feeling. Can you do one, two, or three? That's not necessarily wrong. But our prayer lives really need to be oriented around what is God's purpose, what is God's will? What is God's calling on my life and my family? And, and how can I be more in, in line with what the Lord is doing? Not, Lord, will you get in line with what I want you to do, right? What does the Lord's prayer say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And there's that orientation of realizing, okay, here's who God is. Here's who I am. I have needs. I have things going on in my life. But above all of that, I have the understanding as a Christian that God is king and he has a kingdom and he has a will and I want those things to be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. I want those things to be done through my life most of all. And so Paul's prayer was oriented around what is God's purpose, not just what was his purpose. Now, Paul said he knelt as he prayed. Kneeling uh, was not the normal prayer posture for Jews or Christians or Romans at the time. But for some reason... In this moment, Paul decided to kneel. Now, you don't have to kneel in prayer. It's not better to kneel in prayer. It's not better to sit in prayer. It's not better to stand in prayer. Um, God gives his people a lot of freedom to be sensitive to the what and how of worship and our devotion to him, our prayer life, those sorts of things. Um, He doesn't say, hey, if you don't do it this way, I won't hear your prayers, right? You have to align the wires a certain way, and then I can hear you. And so if you have your hands this way, eh, I can't hear you quite as well. Um, A lot of you remember having to uh, adjust the rabbit ears on the television to get the TV, like, well, I can kind of make out. I remember the channel 53, K-A-I-L, TV 53. No matter what you did, you could never get that channel. And it's okay because they never had any good shows on anyway. But, you know, it, that, when we worship, when we pray, um, it's not that well. We have to align, you know, the antenna a certain way. And if we do it that way, God's really happy. And if we don't do it a certain way, God's really unhappy or he can't really connect with us. God gives us a great amount of freedom. Now, with that said... Uh, posture can be a really wonderful part of our prayer and worship life, right? We see in the Psalms, the raising of hands. Um, We see clapping in the Psalms. We see people kneeling in prayer, standing in prayer. We see people falling down on their face in prayer. And so there's freedom to to be genuinely uh, personally moved in your worship to do certain things. Here at Calvary, uh, our perspective is when we gather to, to worship and to pray, Um, The goal is to keep Christ as the focus, right? And so what we tell people is, especially on a time like Wednesday night, if you want to stand while we worship, that's great. If you want to kneel while we worship, that's fine. Um, If you want to clap, that's fine. But don't draw attention to yourself. We want to always give attention to Christ and not bring it on ourselves and say, look what I'm doing. I'm doing certain posture things, and so that makes me feel big or good or better in some way. Uh, but there's freedom there. So it's not that kneeling is a better way to pray, but for some reason, Paul decided to kneel. But imagine for a moment what's going on. Most of you know that Paul is currently under house arrest. He's in a rented house, but he's chained to a Roman guard round the clock. 
Uh, and so we can picture this. He's in his chair, and if we're kind of going through, you know, if we are imagining that he's dictating the, his letter to the Ephesians, which he was to a friend who was writing it down, and then he, and the soldiers are kind of listening to all of this and thinking, this is weird stuff he's talking about. But then suddenly he gets out of his chair and he kneels down and starts to pray, maybe silently, maybe out loud. Now listen, the soldiers are, are real guys, right? Now a lot of them were one to Christ, but some of them were probably a little more frank, a little more gruff with their dealings with the prisoners they were chained to. If I was chained to a prisoner for my eight-hour shift during the day, I wouldn't be real excited about that, especially when we realize that this chain, Paul references the chain in Ephesians 6, and based off some of the research I did, like the the word he uses, it may have been an 18-inch chain. That is not a long chain, right? Like, so you're, you're, you're cozied up to this Roman guard, right? Which means that if you're kneeling, you're either your arm is up or he has to kneel with you, right? And so uh, maybe his chain was a little bit longer. We don't exactly know. But Paul kneels down, and I can imagine this guy going, what are you doing? What, what's going on? Oh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for some friends of mine in Ephesus. Oh, you've been to Ephesus? Yeah, I was there for three years, a, a few years back. Yeah, didn't, and didn't they like burn millions of dollars of magic books there a, a while back? Yeah, I know a little bit about that, you know. And so in that sense, Paul's kneeling might have been evangelistic, um, that he was taking this opportunity to involve the guard he was shackled to. It's also possible that it was just simply an act of devotion and respect. We're in this section where Paul is talking about the greatness of God and and all that God has done on our behalf, and he's filling our thoughts and our hearts and, of course, his own mind and heart with a reminder of, here's what God has done for you. Here's what God has saved you from. You were dead and now are made alive. Here's God's plan for you. Here's how he's made you a member of his household and all of that, and just being overwhelmed with a realization of what he had been saved from as a sinner and and, and what God had, had done for him, Paul, and for all believers and just realize, yeah, I just want to get down on my knees and thank the Lord and just show that submission and that respect and that devotion to him. It's also possible that Paul was thinking about how one day every knee will bow before God and that he was just making it so in his life, right? He's talking about, hey, there's an unfolding work of God that God is accomplishing through his church and it's, it's going to happen and that Christ is going to, it's going to be the consummation of all things where Christ is going to return and have this kingdom and God is going to undo all of the wrong things that we have done. He's going to fix everything that is broken. He's going to establish his kingdom. And we know that at that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it's possible that uh, you know, he's just continuing this ribbon we've seen through this letter of on earth as it is in heaven, right? Christians don't have to wait to the end of the world to apply God's truths to our lives. We don't have to wait to bow our knees to the Lord and recognize that he is king and that it's his kingdom and all of that. We can apply his truths to our lives right now. We live now in the realities that scripture reveals to us, whether the world around us believes or not, and whether the fulfillment is total yet or not. There's all these prophecies that the Bible gives us that have yet to be totally fulfilled, um, but we can live in those realities even now. Paul spoke of God as Father. That would have stood out in the first century. It's a really common title for the Lord in the New Testament, especially. That would have stood out. 
In many inscriptions at the time, the emperor called himself father of the fatherland, right? You know, he put his name on stuff or buildings and things, and he would say, I am father of the fatherland. And, and Paul says, well, no, God is my father, right? And so throughout this letter, as we've seen before and we'll see again, Christianity stands apart. It stands apart from world religions. It stands apart from world culture. It stands apart from the society that we, the human society that we find ourselves is in. Rome is not our kingdom. Caesar is not our God. He is not father of the fatherland. And so we see that believers had tact and humility, but like Paul is doing here, calling God Father, they were bold to speak the truth, even though it could bring real friction and real-world consequences in some cases. They, they, weren't, um, they weren't vengeful, they weren't hateful, they weren't um, trying to stick a knife into anybody, but they were speaking the truth and say, yeah, God is Father, God, Jesus is King, it's His kingdom. And this Augustus guy can say whatever he wants. Nero can pretend that he is a great man or an emperor. He can pretend that he's God. There was an emperor worship cult uh, in, this, in, the, in Rome, but Christianity stood totally apart from that and said, hey, th- we're not going to play this game where we pretend something that isn't true is true. God the Father, we're told, has named every family on earth and in heaven. This speaks of God's authority and his ownership. He is the creator, of course, but it's more than that. We're told he's made us part of his family. If you're a Christian here tonight, as we've seen in previous passages, you've been adopted as a son or daughter and brought into God's house. In God's house, we behave a certain way. There's certain things we do. There's certain things that we don't do. Maybe at one point, you know, growing up, your dad said something like, in this house, we don't talk to people like that. In this house, this is what we do, right? Um, or we were playing board games, card games. Maybe you had house rules. You know, this is the way that we do things. God has a way of doing things. And he's the decider. He's the father. He's the one in charge of all of those things. It's his family, his house, his economy. He is the one who gets to pick and choose what he wants done. Paul says the Lord has named us. Now, what's that about? We know that Jesus liked to give people nicknames or different names. Your name's Simon. Well, we're going to call you Peter, right? Um, And that happens a lot. And in other parts of the Bible, we're told that, you know, when when we're in heaven, the Lord's going to give each of us a special name that is between he and us. That's a fun thing. But naming not only demonstrates ownership, but one commentator pointed out something really important. God doesn't just, isn't just giving you a nickname. God doesn't just label or categorize his creations. He gives us identity. When he says that he's naming us, that's what he's talking about. He says, I'm giving you identity. Our culture is obsessed with constantly changing our identity, finding it in human behaviors, human categories, human things that we're obsessed with. I'm going to identify myself. And my identity may change day to day, moment to moment, but I identify myself and you must accept my identity because I'm God and you all have to listen to me, right? That's effectively the human heart. That's the human culture we find ourselves in. And our culture is obsessed with it right now. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm God and I'm the one who gives you identity. I'm the one that tells you what it means to be a person. 
I'm the one that tells you what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what it means to be a husband or a wife or a worker or a citizen or a student or a member of your community. I'm the decider. I'm God and I have named you. I have given you an identity. And, and you're to find that and walk with it. That's exactly what he did all the way back in the Old Testament, right? He calls to Abram and he says, Abram, I, I want to do something fantastic in and through your life. Through your life, I want to bless the entire world. Do you want in on that? And Abram says, yeah, I want in on that. He says, okay, now you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. I'm going to redefine who you are. I'm going to give you an identity. I'm not going to strip you of your humanity or, or, or tell you you, can, you have to completely abandon your culture altogether, anything like that. But he says, but you are now my friend, my adopted son. You are now who I say you are. And the entire trajectory of your life, which was heading this way, is now going this way. And when you start heading back this way, I'm going to gently say, hey, that's not who you are anymore. That's not where you're going anymore. Come back over here and we're going to go the way that I want you to go, the way that leads to life, the way that leads to blessing, the way that leads ultimately to glory and everlasting life. God's naming is a big deal. He's giving you identity. He's making you part of what he's unfolding through eternity and the cosmos. So naming doesn't just mean you were called Saul and now you're called Paul. The term can also mean installed in a position, right? God the Father who installs in a position every family on the earth. What a beautiful picture. We remember from last week the study that you are part of God's eternal cosmic work if you're a Christian. And he says, you have a part to play in this fantastic orchestra that is being performed throughout human history for all the cosmos. A real quick extra before we move on. Paul references families on earth and families in heaven. You know, I know for me, it's easy to think that effectively in heaven, there's God and there's some angels and like, that's it, right? But the, the, the truth, does that make sense? Does it make sense that in the heavenly realm, there's like two species of creature? cherubim and seraphim and nothing else. But on earth, the Lord was like, we're going to have a billion different kinds of sparrows, right? And have all of these different creatures. God's a creator. He loves to create things. I mean, I think the, the small snippets of heaven we've seen, whether it's like the divine council or these things going on, I think heaven's going to be packed with all sorts of heavenly beings. Certainly the prophets, when they see visions of heavenly beings, like in the Revelation or Ezekiel, you're like, what's that thing? We're like, we think it's an angel, right? And like, well, why is that angel look different than that angel? That thing's covered in eyes. I don't want to look at it, right? That thing has four heads and one of them is like an animal and one of them is like a different animal. That guy just looks like a dude, right? So there's all kinds of different beings in heaven because God is a creator and it's, Paul seems to indicate here that there are a lot of different families in heaven. Verse 16, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. We need strength. We need spiritual strength. More than affluence, more than safety, more than political power, more than physical health, we need spiritual strength. Paul prayed that the Christians in Ephesus would be strengthened out of the wealth of God's supply through the operation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. 
It's so sad that, you know, looking at the wider Christian culture, there are whole branches of the church that effectively ignore the Holy Spirit. That they say, well, yeah, we, we believe that he exists, but he's eff- effectively done. He doesn't help me with my day-to-day life. I don't know what he does. He's just on vacation. I just do everything myself. And uh, I have the Bible, and that's all. The Holy Spirit just existed to give us the Bible, and he doesn't do anything else anymore. Right? I mean, most, most of the uh, what we would call cessationist denominations wouldn't actually say that, but in a practical way of living, that's what it ends up being. And then on the other hand, you have whole branches of the church that seem to totally misunderstand the way the Holy Spirit does things. The Holy Spirit becomes more like a a force, more like even an animal that has to be conjured and cajoled and convinced to do things in a certain way. Uh, And I'm not suggesting that we know everything we need to know. We don't. Uh, We don't, you know, we're not right about everything, but... And I recognize that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a church and in a life, it is a hard topic in the Christian life, but he is active and he wants to invigorate our lives day by day. At the same time, he doesn't have to be convinced to come and involve himself and do crazy things in your life, right? He's not like a cosmic tinkerbell where you have to rev him up and, you know, clap him into activity. If you've ever been to, you know, Peter Pan, the actual play, there always comes a moment where Tinkerbell is fading out and, and everybody has to rev Tinkerbell up and clap so that the light comes back on. And sadly, there's whole branches and swaths of Christianity that effectively treat the Holy Spirit like that, that we have to, we have to boil up the Holy Spirit so that he'll break out and do stuff. We have to convince him that we're worthy of of having his activity. And that's not at all how the the Spirit is presented. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, just like God the Father, just like God the Son. He loves you and wants to help you in your prayer life and in making the decisions of your life and in understanding the wisdom of God and in showing you opportunities God has given you in all sorts of other ways. He's the comforter. He's the helper. Jesus said, it's really good that I leave planet Earth so this guy can come and help you, right? I think it's sad that we would say, if we had the choice, do you want to keep having the Holy Spirit the way we have him, or would you like Jesus to be physically on the earth? I I think if I'm honest, most of the time I'd be like, it would probably be better if Jesus was bodily on the earth right now. We could video him, and we could talk to him, and he could do stuff. And Jesus said, no, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit, the helper, can come and counsel you and comfort you and intercede for you and do all of these things on a global scale indwelling your hearts. Now, strengthened here can be defined as an ability to perform an activity. What's the activity? Well, we need spiritual strength to live out our salvation that Paul's been talking about, to live out the Christian life, to be built together as God's dwelling. We need spiritual strength to shine the light of his gospel in a dark and dying world. We need spiritual strength to be his body and apprehend the revelation he's giving us and share one another's burden and exercise our faith. We cannot do that without God's strength being given to us. It's not our strength. It's not our endurance. It's not our gritting our teeth and and doing it better than the person next to us. It's God's spiritual strength accomplishing these things through us. The good news is that this strengthening can happen even if your physical life is defined by weakness. In fact, 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, someone needs to hear this tonight because it's already been referenced tonight in our prayer time. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. And so God has strength for you Christians here tonight, no matter how weak you feel. He has it. And he wants you to experience it. Verse 17 begins and says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Hold there. About 10 years ago, it became popular for a while out there in church land uh, to be against the idea of Jesus living in our hearts. In 2013, J.D. Greer, a popular internet author, and he was the president of the SBC at the time, he wrote an article titled, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Around the same time, popular author and pastor David Platt put out a video titled, Why Accepting Jesus Into Your Heart is Superstitious and Unbiblical. You know, it's always easier to tear down than to build up, especially in the internet age. It's always easier to pick something and say, you thought you knew, but you've been wrong all this time. Oh, and then people share it and they feel bad. I guess I've been wrong my entire life. Listen, here's Paul saying, What does he say? I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Done. (laughs) You know? Uh, But wait, aren't we in Christ? I thought we were in Christ, not he's in us. Yeah, we are in Christ, but the Bible presents Christ as wanting to dwell in our hearts as well. It's an image the Bible gives more than once of Christ wanting to come into your heart and dwell with you. But at the same time that we are hidden in Christ. Jesus said it very plainly in John 14. He said, you are in me and I am in you. Right, that's the arrangement. Now, in Ephesians 1, we were told that Christ fills all things in every way. And yet, what do we see here? It's like, I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts. And it reinforces what we learn elsewhere in Scripture, that God has given human beings the freedom to bar the door, lock the doors of their hearts, and keep Christ from coming in if they want to. I saw the oldest lock that they've ever found, something like 4,000 years old, near the city of Nineveh. Really cool thing. The, the oldest lock in, in, in reality is the human heart. What did, what did God say to Cain? He said, hey, hey, what's up, what's up, man? You got a problem. Sin's crouching out the door. Don't let sin in. Don't let sin devour you and, and take control of you. Instead, I want you to interact with me in a personal and loving way. And so human beings can lock the door of our hearts against the Lord. What does Revelation 3.20 says? The Lord says, I'm outside the door of your heart and I'm knocking. And I hope you will let me in so I can come in and sup with you. And it's not just that Jesus wants to have a quick lunch with you and and then take off. Paul's term for dwell here means a long-term habitation. He wants to dwell in our hearts. And so this is an amazing situation we find ourselves in. God, who can do whatever he wants, you recognize that God can do whatever he wants, right? God can do absolutely anything he wants to do. Thank goodness he's a God of love and grace, right? Because God could Thanos us, right? I mean, that's a silly thing to say, but right? God could snap his proverbial fingers and everything ceases to exist. And we say, well, God wouldn't do that only because he's a God of love and grace. If he was a God like any of the gods humans make in their image, he would have done it a billion times over. But God can do whatever he wants according to his nature. And what has he decided he wants to do? He's decided he wants to dwell with you and interact with you every single day. And the way for us to engage with this incredible offer is to believe 
through faith, Paul says here. Do I believe God and that he wants to dwell with me and that he wants to do all these things Paul's been telling me about? Or do I think I have to convince God to love me, convince God to work in my life, you know, convince God to help me in some way? That's the whisper in our hearts all the time, right? That God doesn't really, doesn't really love you. That God doesn't really want to hang in there with you. That, man, it was fine yesterday, but today's imperfection really pushed you over the edge into God saying, yeah, this one's a lemon. Let's go with somebody else. But do we believe that God is true and that he really does love us the way he says he loves us? Another little extra, these verses give us a great view of the Trinity. What do we see? Father, Son, Spirit, all in operation, separated out. You can tuck that away for the next time you're at Thanksgiving talking to a non-Trinitarian family member or friend. (laughs) Verse 17 continues, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. Paul's words about being rooted remind us of Psalm 1 where God's people are, are... pictured as trees planted beside flowing streams bearing fruit. The New New Living Translation gives us, verse 17, this way, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And so Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians and all the saints, notice that in, in verse 18, so us too, he's praying that we would have a lifestyle of love. If that's what our lives are rooted in, the love of God, then we will bear the fruit of love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things. All those things that flow from love. That's the fruit of our lives, love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, right? Not pride, not hatred, not greed, not vengeance, not resentment. And if those fruits are being born in our lives, something's up because that's not the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit brings out of a life. The shepherd's tree is native to deserts of southern Africa. It can grow to be about 30 feet tall, but it's usually much shorter. It's evergreen, despite the harsh conditions it lives in. Its claim to fame is that it is the tree that has the absolute deepest roots. This little tree, they have found its roots going down over 220 feet into the ground. Really neat picture, the shepherd's tree. Our spiritual lives can have roots that go deeper and deeper and deeper into our shepherd's love. Paul wanted all of us to comprehend just how long, how wide, how deep, how high God's love is. Comprehend here is a word that can mean to hold as one's own. All these things he's talking about, they're not just some philosophic theory. God really wants you to have a personal relationship with him where you are connected to his heart and his grace and his power and his limitless love, where your life is built upon his love, upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Paul says here, with all the saints in verse 18. Your relationship with God is personal. You're going to stand before the Lord by yourself. But there is a communal aspect to Christianity. Ephesians brings this home again and again and again. Christianity cannot be separated from the church, meaning the gathering of believers together. Together we comprehend. Together we take hold of these things. Together we're built up and put into operation. It's not the only way that God works in our lives, but it is an essential way. One commentator writes, at every turn, Christianity is a corporate religion. 
Now listen, we live in a time where many Christians are more than content to cut themselves off from church gathering because of something that's happened in their past or because of some book they read or some blog that tells them they can be a Christian all by themselves or whatever reason. And listen, churches aren't perfect. Our church isn't perfect, but they are necessary. And God requires that we be connected to a group of believers in what is called the ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering of his people. If we want to be operational as Christians, if we want to be mature, then we must be regularly connecting with a gathering of believers in a local church because Christianity is a team sport. We're playing spiritual rugby out here, right? The, the Lord, uh, Paul's going to say you're wrestling against powers and principalities. You know what uh, one sport you don't want to play with a team of one? Rugby. When the other team has a team of however many people are on a rugby team. I don't know. I didn't do the research. So, but it's a team sport. Verse 19, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, so Paul, how can we comprehend something that surpasses knowledge? He says, I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. What's going on here? Are you familiar with the social media hashtag IYKYK? If you know, you know, right? You'll see that on forums sometimes or on social media. Part of Paul's message is that the things of God cannot be known outside of a relationship with him. But once you are in Christ and Christ is in you, God then begins to reveal these spiritual mysteries and increases your understandings as you walk with him. There's always more for us to lay hold of, always more for us to comprehend. Think of an imaginary person out there who has a PhD in oceanography and a PhD in marine biology. They're a marine biologist, right? Give them four PhDs. Give them 10 PhDs. They know a lot about the ocean. And yet, we know that there's more they don't know about the ocean than they could ever learn in their lifetime, right? So much of the ocean is still unexplored. We don't know hardly anything about the depths of the ocean or always discovering weird new species. I saw a picture of just the most heinous creature. They just discovered some new sea star has like 20 legs. It looks like it's from the movie Alien and that if it's near your face, you're going to have a real problem, right? Look it up later and be horrified. It was on Not the Bee this week. But there's always more to learn, always more to comprehend. God's love is like that. It surpasses our ability to know in this life. But there's also this aspect to what Paul is saying. Knowing God, being a Christian, being in his love is not just an intellectual exercise. It surpasses intellectual knowledge. Because understanding a list of doctrines that doesn't make you a Christian. Our faith must be put into operation. We're to experience the realities that God has revealed. A genuine Christian life is one where you don't just memorize Psalm 23, but in a sense where God walks you through your own Psalm 23, where we don't just hear that God fills people, but that he fills our lives, that we don't just stand beside the sea of his love observing, but that we become saturated with it ourselves. And it's a lifelong experience. Paul told the Corinthians, hey, right now I know in part but one day I will know fully. And that's Paul who like, he got to see a vision of heaven, right? (laughs) He got to see Jesus Christ face to face more than once. The Lord's revealing things to him, appearing to him in a jail cell. He's working miracles. And he says, right now, I know in part. And later I will know fully. And so it's a lifelong experience. But you know what? It's interesting. The Corinthians, they thought they knew everything. Paul indicates that in chapter eight. 
They say, hey, we already know everything. And Paul says, oh, really? I didn't realize you've already apprehended. I guess you left us all behind. And what was the result in the Corinthian church? Most of you know. Infighting, selfishness, spiritual weakness, compromise, misapplication of Scripture. That's what happens if you think you know everything. We're invited to an ongoing life of maturing and taking hold of the love of God, not just apostles, not just missionaries, but every single Christian. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. As I said, the first three chapters of of Ephesians is doctrinal, but in that, Paul just keeps saying, in a sense, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. And we've been kind of highlighting that. There's always more more of God's goodness, more of God's power, more of God's grace, more of God's activity on your behalf. And he does it again here, this huge crescendo of like, and on top of all of that, more than you could ever ask or imagine, right? You can't get bigger than this. The term he uses for what God is able to do means infinitely beyond, very much in excess of, or to outdo super abundantly all that you ask. That's what the Lord wants for you and for me. God, with all of his power, with all of his freedom, has oriented his attention, his affection, his activity toward you to adopt you, to revolutionize your life, to make you a part of his unfolding cosmic plan. It's not just a potential thing he might do for some of us. It's a work that he is working even now in our lives. If we're honest, though, we don't always see it and we certainly don't always feel it. I recognize that. That's true in my life. Rather than be discouraged about how we fall short or by the things we don't understand, let's do what Paul does and pray for these plans of God to be made more real to us. Pray for strength, pray for power, pray for a greater capacity to receive and to comprehend what God has revealed. Do what Paul does and say, Lord, I believe that this is true and so strengthen me to receive it and do what you want to do in our lives. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. After three chapters of talking about the wondrous things God has done and is doing through the church, Paul makes sure to focus our attention on the one who does it. Christ is the focus. It's his glory. It's his plan. It's his power, his goodness. It's his body. My life as a Christian is not really meant to be the focus of my life. Your life is not meant to be the focus of your life. God's glory is meant to be our focus. The focus of my life should be the presence of God and the glory of God in it. Because my life is his home. My heart is his throne. My situation is a position God allows me to be in so that I can know him more deeply and bear fruit and be a conduit of grace and a beacon of his glory. And again, Paul wants us to know that this doesn't happen in an individualized spiritual cubicle. To him be glory in the church. Daryl Bach writes, the church is where God is expressing himself most visibly in the world, which is why it is imperative that the church reflects the enablement Paul is asking for here. So the Christian life is all about who you know. Do we know the Lord? Do we know him personally? Are we rooted in him or are we just observing things about him? Do we know who he has placed us beside to be built up together with? Paul talks about how, hey, the Lord is drawing you to be connected to specific living stone, other believers in a community to be built up together as a dwelling place for the Lord. Maybe that's this church. Maybe that's a different church. That's between you and the Lord as he guides and directs you. But do we know who we're supposed to be connected with? 
These are the paths to fullness and strength and power and eternal identity. So let's take root deeper together.